It's Brian Preston, the Money Guy, restoring order to your financial chaos, retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the Money Guy. October 4th, 2006, we're into the fourth quarter of the year, and um, third quarter wasn't too bad for us unless you had all of your assets in the oil and gas stocks, but other than that, I think we've all done pretty well. I want to talk to you guys today's podcast, the financial chaos topic, because remember, what we're here doing at the Money Guy Podcast is we're restoring order to your financial chaos. So we're going to talk about how lazy investors are the wealthiest. And I know that sounds kind of counterintuitive to what you would think would happen with investing, but I'm going to give you some insight into what's going on. And I'm not saying that um, if you sit around and do nothing, save no money, and you're going to wake up one day and have millions in the bank or that lottery ticket's going to finally come your way. That's not what I'm talking about when I say lazy investors are the wealthiest. I'll give you some insight. Part of what we're going to be talking about and what we're going to learn on this podcast is we're going to learn the hierarchy of investment decisions, the cycle of market emotions and how they can just be devastating to your financial assets if you let those emotions play upon you and hurt your long-term financial viability, the common investing mistakes, how to solve investing mistakes, how to accumulate $1 million by the age of 65, and then insight from Mr. Warren Buffett, the Oracle from Omaha. You know, it'd be nice if we were all like Warren where we could all do um, the great things and act like him, and that's what we're going to try to give you some insight on today. But before we jump in to talking about the lazy investors are the wealthiest and giving you that insight into investing, I wanted to go over a few things on how you can contact me. You can contact me by email, which is brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. You can also call our 1-800 number, which is 1-800-762-8502. This is your opportunity to leave us questions, comments, concerns, anything you want to know or let us know about the podcast. This is your opportunity to let it out. Now, we've gotten several calls, but I wanted to go ahead and give you a taste of what it sounds like when we get these calls in. So I'm going to play one of these, and then I'm going to encourage you to please call us with um, additional phone calls in the future so we can get your insight on the air. Hey, Brian. Um I'm from up in the uh, Chicago area, and I just tune into your podcast today. And usually I wouldn't do something like this, and that is call in. But I got to tell you, for what you look like, which is a pretty young guy, I was pretty amazed by your level of maturity and insight. Uh, I'm one of those guys that have recently, uh, last few years, made the jump into uh, trying to become a business owner, going through the ups and downs, of course. And um, everything you say is so right on. Keep up the good work. Uh, I just wanted to give you a little bit of encouragement and tell you that um, I'm impressed um, and uh, look forward to hearing a few more uh, things from you. So take care and hope things go well for you. Bye now. So there's a taste of what it sounds like if, uh, if you call the 1-800 number, one 800 8502 But i got to tell you, one insight I can give you just from listening to this call is that um, our subscriber up in Chicago had said that I looked very young in the picture, and I joked about this with Priscilla as well as Heidi. Those are um, the two individuals that work here. Y'all know Heidi because she's the producer of the show. But we were joking because that show, the picture I actually have out there on iTunes and elsewhere on FeedBurner and so forth was originally taken when I was 23 years of age. 
I'm such a tightwad. I have not sat for a headshot in forever, so I have not gone and done an updated, done an updated picture. But I will tell you, when I told that to, to Heidi, she says, well, the only problem is you look exactly like you do in that picture. So uh, I'm about to turn 33, so I'm still a young guy, but I'm not quite as young as I look in that picture. But um, maybe I can get that updated in the, the coming year. But right now it's not the, the primary concern of mine. But let's jump right in and let's talk about why lazy investors are more than likely the wealthiest when you look at some of the, the statistics and researches out there on investing. The first thing you've got to understand about investing is that there is a hierarchy to how your investment decisions need to be made. And I want to go over those with you and then get into some of these this statistical data. But I first want to give you the insight, little nuggets of information you need to know on what you need to be considering on to make investment decisions. The first thing, starting with the most important, then we're going to go down from most important to the least important. The most important is what is your time horizon of your investments? And that is so important because remember in the marketplace, short-term investing is driven by fear and greed, and then long-term is driven by really the economy and the fundamental structure of the companies. So if you know you're going to need money within a five-year period, by no means do you need to even consider investing into bonds or stocks. You need to put that money into to cash and money markets and CDs. And a good money market that I always throw out there is Immigrant Direct has a great one. I saw that their rate has, their yield has dipped a little bit because of interest rates coming down a little bit, not um, from the Fed, but just because of market factors. They've dropped it down to 5.05%. Still not bad on cash when you can pull it in and out every other day. Um, the second most important thing that you need to consider after your time horizon and how long you let go of that money for is what asset classes will be considered. If you can be a long-term investor, meaning let go of that money for greater than five years, then you want to start looking at asset classes. And when I say asset classes, I mean large companies. That's like your GEs, your Home Depots, your Walmarts, companies we've all heard of. Your small companies, which are companies you probably would not even know existed unless they had a factory right next door to you or you used their product and you loved it and um, you were aware of that small company that way. You also have international companies, which are companies outside of the United States. You've got commodities, which are your oil and gas, your natural resources like lumber and, and items like that that are great infl inflation protectors. You've got bonds which can be government bonds, corporate bonds. There's all types, and then they can come in different sizes and structures like uh, inflation protected. They can be treasuries. You, you can play around. There's all kind of different type of fixed income issues. And then you've also got real estate. Real estate's another asset class. And then you also have what's called absolute return strategies like hedge funds. So you need to look at all the different asset classes and make sure you have a nice mix. I answered a lot of them. Um, subscriber emails in the last podcast and one of the things we talked about pretty in depth was asset classes so if you want to go back and listen to that market and media update we did a few weeks ago you can kind of get a little more feedback on what i'm talking about with asset classes you then after you take and, and figure out your time horizon and the asset classes you need to figure out what that mix will be with asset classes and i'll tell you recently we have been dialing down our real estate exposure a little bit, pulling money also out of small cap um, and going more towards large cap. Because if you looked at the price to earnings ratio, the P.E., I know many of you have heard that on, on, if you listen to a lot of these financial type podcasts. If you look at the P.E. ratio, 
back in 2000 on large cap stocks, it was very, very high. I believe it was well over 30. Um, whereas now, and you looked at small cap back then, I think the PE on most small caps back around 2000 was well over 10%. And then you go back and fast forward now to where we are in 2006, and that is completely flip-flopped. Now you have large cap stocks have a much lower price-to-earnings ratio than you do for small cap stocks. So that means that they're probably much more attractive, and you're going to be allocating more money to large companies and index funds and things like that. So you have to consider... After the time horizon and asset classes, the mix between your asset classes. And then after that, you want to go down and look at the sub-asset classes. And this is when I talk about sub-asset classes. I'm talking about if you figure out you want to do bonds, now you got to figure out how much you want to do in corporate bonds, short-term bonds, inflation-protected bonds. These are the, what the sub-accounts are, the sub-asset classes. And then the last decision is which manager will you select? And what I've talked about, and I know some of these podcasts, because iTunes only shows the last 10 podcasts, we've lost some of those early podcasts when I got into investment basics. But the main thing to recap what I talked about on that is you want to buy a manager that's shown a very long track record of being an overperformer among its peer group. And then you also want to just make sure that you're buying funds that don't have a lot of bleed over, meaning they don't go and invest in asset classes that are outside of what you're trying to buy into. And then I'll go ahead and give you a tidbit. This is huge because there's a lot of people out there trying to sell mutual funds. Is My personal belief is that if you're buying into large U.S. companies, and that's like I said, that's the, the, you know, the GEs, the Walmarts, the Home Depots, all the big guys that we've all heard of, you probably want to consider buying an index fund or, or an ETF, exchange-traded fund. And the reason I say that, and I know I've said this in an earlier podcast, but I'm recapping a little bit, is that if you think about there are really approximately about, about a 1,000 huge mega companies in the United States. Meanwhile, there are a gazillion people just like me. I mean, you can't drive to the grocery store without seeing people that supposedly can give you advice on their investments in the grocery store or in the strip mall that the grocery store is in, or across the street from the, the grocery store. I mean, they're everywhere. They're in banks now. All the banks have them where they do financial and investment planning. And so there are a gazillion people out there, like myself, who can supposedly tell you how to invest their money better. So if you have all these people, a gazillion people, looking at a 1,000 companies, and we have the Internet, We've got CNBC and Bloomberg and all these cable channels now that have um, 24-hour coverage on the markets. And then we've also got you know, just your newspapers, your Wall Street journals. How in the world, from a common-sense approach, how in the world can any of those gazillion people that are supposedly these investment advisors that know more than anybody else about these large companies know more than another? And I tell you, I don't think it's possible. I think that the market is way too efficient to really be able to outperform the index in the long term. Because what happens if you've got everybody doing the exact same thing and they're all trying to keep up with the index in the first place? What impacts your performance is your cost of what you're paying for that fund. Well, index funds, partially why they're hard to beat in performance, is because, I'll tell you, if you're using funds like the Fidelity Spartan Index 500 and others in that Spartan fund family, their internal expenses are 0.10%. The average internal expense is over 1.5%, so you can see they're 15 times cheaper. And that's 
money that goes right into your back pocket. So that's a big thing, just recapping on why it is so important on how you look and investing your assets. And that's the hierarchy of investment decisions. The next thing that I want you to understand is the cycle of market emotions. And like I told you, short term, much of the market is driven by greed and fear. And I'm going to go over what those, those the cycle of the market emotions are so that you can really know the point of maximum financial risk as well as the point of maximum financial opportunity. And where the market really starts out, let's talk about the area of maximum financial risk. Is like we were back in March of 2000, where you had the Nasdaq, you had the Dow, you had all the the the, the key indices in the marketplace were reaching all times all time highs. At that point, you're reaching an area that's called euphoria. Everybody is going to cocktail parties. They're bragging about how they're making 100 percent, 40 percent. You know these outrageous rates of returns. And they're going and bragging to everybody. It's the news media is piling on, and you're starting to see where everybody thinks this is going to go on forever. You start to hear words like we're in a new paradigm where P/E ratios of 50 to 100 is completely rational because of this. Da 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 da. And they'll give a reason why you should have valuations of the fundamental structure of the company should be this way. And you'll start to see people there just making up reasons why you should be paying these high prices for these stocks because everybody is irrational. They're all drunk off of the money that they've made off these issues. That is the point of maximum financial risk where you've got to be careful. The next area when the market starts to come down from that point. You start to see a little bit of, of you know, anxiousness uh, about what's going on within the, the, the marketplace. Then when the market drops a little bit more, you start to see denial. Right between that anxiousness and denial, you see a, a, it, people start to say, this is a temporary setback. I'm a long-term investor. I can hang in there. So they're starting to go down that roller coaster ride, and you start to hear them say, we can hang in there. We're long-term investors. After that denial factor comes in fear, straight fear. From fear, we go down to desperation. From desperation, we hit the panic button. Once we hit the panic point, meaning that the market's gone down where we're panicking, we reach that point where we're just willing to give up. And it's between give up and the hopelessness, because that's the next phase, is that you start asking yourself, as you chew on your fingernails, you go, how could I have been so wrong? And you really start to get depressed about what's happened. And then the last phase is you reach that depression about how you reached and made this decision to go into investing and you've lost all this money. Once you reach that depression, or you know, right there between hopelessness and the depression, is the point of maximum financial opportunity. And what have I said in previous podcasts is that to make money in the financial marketplace, you have to be prepared to head for the entrance while everybody else is headed for the exits. Because you're going to see everybody and their brother is trying to get out because they're scared to death and you're running right in there. It's that whole old, old adage that is the simplest thing about investing that you always hear people talking about is that you want to buy low and then sell high. Yet nobody does that because they let this emotional side of investing really impact them. When do, when things do start to improve, because it's when you reach that bottom, that maximum point of financial opportunity, 
when the economy is starting to change an opportunity. Maybe you're coming out of a recession, um, supply orders, orders for, for goods to companies are starting to, to rebound. You're starting to see where inventory's gone to nothing, so you're starting to see companies buy more and more of their products. And you go from depression, now you're on the uphill some ride of this, and you go from depression to hope. You start to feel a little bit of relief after hope, and then you hit that point of optimism. From optimism, I mean, because we're really starting to crank at this point, you go to excitement, and then you start to hit the thrill of investing because now you've ridden this thing down from the depression period to the thrill of you actually starting to make some compounding money here. And then after thrill, you know, between thrill and that euphoria that I've already talked about, which is the point of maximum financial risk, you start to feel, wow. I'm really smart. And that's that, that's that point right between the thrill and the euphoria that you really are starting to feel that this is going to go on forever and you've got to be really, really nervous about what's going on. So be careful when you're looking at the cycles of what's going on in the market. Now, let's, let me give you some statistics because I give you all this insight and I want to give you some, you know, some actual numbers to back this up. Back in 2003, and I'm going to use this um, research organization a good bit. It's called Dalbar. Back in 2003, they came out with a research study that showed from 1984 to 2002, the average equity investor got a rate of return of 2.57%. You're like, good God, that's that's just pitiful. I mean, that's almost a 20-year period, and they only got 2.57% a year. Well, what did inflation, Brian, that's the next question I'd ask. Brian, what, what was inflation during that period? Inflation was 3.14%. So they're not, you know, the dollar is going down. The, the, each dollar that they're spending is not worth what it was when they first started investing because they let their emotions totally rip apart any type of rates of returns they could have had. This is what I'm saying, that the wealthy sometimes are the laziest investors out there because if you were just a buy and hold type investor, the S&P 500, if you just bought an index fund, the S&P 500 during that same period of time from 1984 to 2002 made 12.22%. Now, remember, this is going through 2002, which had 2002, which was a dreadful year that the market lost more than 20%. You had 2001 when the market lost 12%. And then you had 2000, which we know was a dreadful year. So it's not like this was all roses during this period from 1984 to 2002. And the causes primarily is that the investment in equities on market upswings the people, when they piled in on those market upswings, they were quick to sell when the downturns. It's that fear and the greed factor that came in and took their money. And then um, the market was their driving force. It wasn't the fundamentals of what was going on out there, that price-to-earnings ratio or how good the companies were within the mutual fund that they were buying into. It was the market and how, their friends telling them how good things were at the cocktail parties. And, you know, and then this is another stat that shows you how bad the average investor is on trying to time things. The average investor held equity funds a little over two years. Does that sound like a long-term investor to you? I just told you not to put any money out there unless you can do five to seven years. And, I, and I'm telling you this research shows that the average investor held it for just a little over two years. It's just wrong, and that's why people are getting burned on investments because they don't understand what they're doing and they're making the wrong decisions. So we go and transition right from there to the common investing mistakes that people are making. And this ties right into what we were talking about. People rely upon tips and fads from friends and relatives. 
They also, there's a lack of discipline, meaning people are just buying willy-nilly. Maybe somebody called them, cold-called them at home, told them about a great genetic company that was going to cure cancer, and they decided to pile upon it and um, lost money. You trade too frequently. Remember, you want to be lazy when it comes to investing and just kind of be a buy and hold and sit back with that permanent portfolio and let it grow. Um, there's also, and this ties right into what I just said, the timing of the market is another common mistake. You're also subject to sales presentations. I was talking to somebody, a, a, a son of one of my clients called this morning, asking for some advice. And, you know, and I could tell he was a little skeptical about what financial advisors and investment advisors do. And, and I, I thought that's a good thing because I think that you have to be very skeptical about anybody when it's dealing with your money. I think you really don't want to trust unless you completely understand what's going on. And there are a group of people out there, and there's nothing wrong. I mean, some people are actually doing a really good job, but there are a group of salespeople out there that are trying to get you to invest in their schemes just for the sheer fact of what they can make off of it. You know, you see these things, a lot of these late-night infomercials on these investment opportunities, these trading software packages where you can supposedly, you know, from sitting – and at your kitchen table and your underwear, you can make millions of dollars a year. I mean, don't you think if that was the case, why would this person even have to sell this package of how you can sell and make millions of dollars buying and selling stocks and options in your kitchen with underwear on? There's just no way. It doesn't work that way. Otherwise, they wouldn't even have to market this stuff. They make their millions by selling you these packages. Also, people are, a big mistake people make is they don't understand the cost of the investments they're buying. They pay huge commissions or they buy annuities, they have huge surrender charges and internal fees. They also go too aggressive or either they're too conservative. It's not uncommon to see somebody with a 401k that's not retiring for 20 years that's got all their money in money markets because they're so scared they're going to lose money. They also, you see people who go back, and I see this at 401k, 401k meetings as well, is you'll see somebody who looks solely at past performance. You'll, you'll see somebody who's looking at all the funds, and they're going to go choose the one that has the best performance for the last two years. That's awful. That's called chasing the hot dot. And if you go chase that hot dot, go look at the performance of the leading indica- the leading funds. Go find that issue of Money Magazine or Kiplinger's that has the best performing funds of 2005. And let's go look and see how they did in 2006 or 2007 next year when we reach it. They're not going to be the top performers again. There's a reason they 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 bounce up so high, but then they have a, a period where they balance out and they don't get those great rates of returns. There's also the start and stop approach. This is another thing I see when I give consulting on 401ks. As you see people, they um, start investing in their 401k, they start losing a little bit of money, or in, and all of a sudden they decide, well, you know what, I'm going to just stop doing it. It's not worth it. That's that start and stop approach. Huge mistake. There's also too many accounts and advisors. It's not uncommon. I'll tell you, this is one of the things that when I have a brand new prospect, we try to know what all their accounts are doing and how they're working together because you can't look at, say, your your spouse has a 401K and then you have a retirement account. I know they're two separate accounts, but you really need to look at all of y'all's assets as one big financial pizza pie. And they need to be working together. And I think a lot of times people don't do that. They kind of compartmentalize all their different investments, and that's a disaster and a big common mistake as well. Lack of asset allocation, 
Unrealistic expectations. One of the first questions I ask somebody, I actually have a prospect questionnaire I send out, is I ask, what do you think a reasonable rate of return to be on the stock market? And I can tell you, when somebody marks on their 20% a year, 15% a year, I know we need to have a discussion about what's realistic in the stock market because I think a lot of people who are investing and making money back in the 90s, but then after the 90s have lost all that money, still have these expectations that we're going to come back into a period where you're going to make 20, 30, 40% a year. And I just don't think fundamentally we can do that. Sure, there's going to be years where you have overperformance and outperformance where you can make these, these substantial rates of returns, but those are usually at the bottom of the market after people have gone through that depression um, when most people are scared because you've headed into the building while everybody else was headed out on that investment vehicle. And then the last common mistake is really doing nothing, the inertia. You know, just kind of ho-hum, whatever happens. I'm saying you need to be lazy with your approach, meaning buying hold, but don't just be doing nothing at all, meaning that you set up that 401k with a money market and then you never go look at it, make adjustments or, or make changes. Um, you do need to not market timing, but you do need to look at asset classes to target adding more money when you see that the, the asset class is undervalued or you think there's going to be an opportunity there. That's what we're doing right now when we say we've switched money from small company stocks over to large company stocks is because we've looked at those price-to-earnings ratios and we think there's an opportunity. Um, where does the media fall in all this? You know, I do think that the media kind of hurts the average investor because they do have these shows on um, CNBC and Bloomberg where they – they really they have to fill 24 hours of air with these talking heads, and um, you know it, you really can't do 24 hours a day of saying you know what I think the probably the best approach for you is to go buy an index fund, buy and hold. You don't see it. They've got to fill the airs. It's not exciting. So they they have these talking heads that are giving all kind of insight, supposed insight, and. Um, and it's it's not healthy, I don't think. I think it can it can cause you to do what you actually don't need to do. I listen. Jim Cramer has that money show, and you you hear him do his um, bulls and bears, you know, and all the other things he does before he does the booyah. And but what's funny is I heard him. I don't know if he had a book tour or something, but I heard him on the radio a few months ago when he was here in Atlanta, and he was um or he maybe called into an Atlanta radio station, but I heard him on the radio, and, and, and the, the person, the DJ asked him, he said, what do you recommend people do for an investments? And no kidding, Jim said they ought to buy an index fund. But you don't hear him say necessarily all that stuff on his TV show because, let's face it, it's not exciting, it doesn't draw ratings, and that's what a lot of these TV shows are about. Um, a lot of people will also say, well, why don't I just stay with, there's all this risk with investing, why don't I just stay in cash? Well, the cash players need to be really careful about inflation. If you think about a dollar, what a dollar is worth in 30 years, and just assume a 4% inflation rate, and you're like, well, Brian, wait a minute, 4%, that's a lot. No, that's not high because just last year, the core inflation rate was 3.8%. So 4% is a very realistic number to expect. You go back to the late 70s, early 80s, you can see inflation goes into double digits. So 4% is a very conservative inflation number to use. It's probably pretty realistic. If you take a dollar bill in 30 years, that dollar is only going to be worth 31 cents. So you can see a dollar is not going to go as far in 30 years. It's only going to buy you 
31 cents of what a dollar would buy today. And that's, that's kind of scary. So for those cash players out there, I think they're just going to stay in the money markets. They're just going to stay in cash, let all this investment risk pass them by. They actually have another risk. It's called the purchasing power risk that they're going to play upon. So you need to be careful with that. So let's talk about, I've scared you to death here, told you all these things that you can do wrong. How do we solve these investing mistakes? First, you need to understand your goals, your risk tolerance, and your time horizon. Because remember that hierarchy of making investment decisions. You've got to know your goals, your risk tolerance, and your time horizon. Know how much you need to, to afford in your future retirement lifestyle. Kind of know what you're going in. Think about this stuff. If you're 10, 15, 20, 30 years from retirement, go ahead and start thinking about where you're going to be. There's a lot of great tools out there on the Internet that will give you you know, a real quick summary of what you need to be saving. You also need to put together a disciplined asset allocation. Avoid those emotional reactions we talked about with that cycle of the emotional investor. You need to get on to a dollar-cost averaging. And when I say dollar-cost averaging routine, what I mean by that is that you're investing every month, meaning through like a 401K or you got money going into your Roth IRA or a SEP IRA. you got to have some type of automatic investment plan. I don't care if it's $50 a month. Anybody who's working can be saving money, and I recommend that you really think strongly about saving 15 to 20% of your gross wages. That's before taxes and before everything else. You need to be saving 15 to 20% because, let's face it, Social Security stinks, and it's not going to be there for the younger people. So you've got to take care of yourself. Um, you also need to educate yourself from objective sources. I got you a clue on where is an objective source. What do I get out of doing this Money Guy podcast? Absolutely nothing. So, um, you know, I'm a fee-only financial advisor and wealth manager. I'm trying to get this out there because I know there's a great disparity between what the wealthy can afford to buy through advice and what the average investor can. So we're trying to level the playing field here by giving you some great advice. So here's a great objective source. Also, go get the Wall Street Journal. I think that's a great place. There's a lot of great areas that you can go. Even the Consumer Reports has a brand new investment newsletter that they're doing. I think it's pretty good. You know, it gives you some good basic stuff that you can go look at. And if you want to get, actually go buy some of this data stuff, you can. Um, there's our links directly on our website, money-guy.com, where you can go see these links directly. You also need to evaluate risk and return. Do not try to, to time markets is another way to solve your investment problems. And then understand the two biggest things that impact your performance on your investments is the fees that you're paying and the taxes. So the way around that is go read that prospectus. Whenever you buy a brand new investment, a mutual fund specifically, or, or an annuity, they're going to give you a prospectus. Even though it's going to be put you to sleep after the first five minutes, usually buried on page 20, you're going to find a list of fees and charges. Make sure you understand every one of those. As for taxes, make sure you're maximizing all of those retirement accounts because those are more tax beneficial. Also, make sure that you are taking advantage of long-term capital gains, meaning that you're not selling stocks or mutual funds that have capital gains in them unless you've owned them 12 months. And then make sure that you got those dividends being reinvested that are only being taxed at 15% currently. Those are great strategies to make you a tax-efficient investor. And another side benefit to buying hedge, I mean, um, index funds as well as exchange traded funds or ETFs is that they're extremely tax efficient because they're buying, you know, index funds are more of a buy and hold approach. So they don't have all that turnover that causes a lot of taxes, especially what you see in the fourth quarter. And, and that's, that, 
I'm going to go on a little sidebar here. By the way, if you if you have a large sum of money to invest in the fourth quarter, be careful of the capital gains that mutual funds issue in the fourth quarter. If you're looking at buying an S&P index fund the fourth quarter and you have a large sum of money, I'd recommend you buy an exchange trade fund because they don't have those capital gain distributions in the fourth quarter like a lot of the other index funds might have at a mutual fund company. Just a little sidebar to give you that. Let's talk about the big goal everybody's always wants to do is they want to have a million dollars by the time they're 65. And I've given this stat out there, but I want to remind you. If you want to have a million dollars by the time you're 65, if you were a one-year-old individual, meaning your children, and they're getting a rate of return of 10% a year, you've got 64 years to save that million dollars. What do you think you'd have to put in a month? Only $14 a month. I mean, I know people are spending a lot more than that just on coffee, on ice cream, on their cable bill, on their satellite bill, on going to get the car washed every two weeks. I mean, it's not hard to save $14 a month if you are a young child, for your young child, if you want to give them a head start on things. If you're a 20-year-old, you've got 45 years still to invest, you only need to save $95 a month. That is powerful stuff, less than $100 a month. You can be a millionaire by the time you're 65 because you got that, that time horizon that lets that money compound, and it's just such a powerful force compounding interest is. Now, let's talk about the people who wait. What if you wait until you're 40? How much do you have to put in for the next 25 years to make a million dollars? You have to put $754 a year, a month, I should say, not a year, a month, $754 a month. If you're 50 and you want to have... A million dollars in 15 years and you hadn't started saving anything, you got to save $2,413 a month. Do you see the trend here? The longer you wait to save and invest, the harder it's going to be for you. And if you wait until you're 64 and decide that you're going to um, want to be a millionaire by the time, you know, in the next year, you got to save $79,583 a month. More power to you if you can do it. The next thing on just trying to scare you into starting to save early, because I know the younger people out there are not doing what they need to. They're too big, too busy, I should say, acting like and faking that they are successful, buying the brand new car, running up the credit card debt, not doing what they need to do. So I'm going to give you some encouragement by giving you this statistic. Say you have an individual right out of college, 22. They start saving $2,000 a year really for the next nine years. So they've invested $18,000 over that nine-year period. When they retired 65, that nine years of investment, because that's all they did. They did nine years in stock by the time they were at the end of their age 30, right before they hit 31. Their account was worth $579,471, assuming a 9% rate of return. So they were right at $580,000. Now their buddy went out and had a great time was going out to restaurants, bars every other night, had a brand new car, had these great designer jeans, looked really good on them, and they didn't start saving until they were 31. But they said, you know what, since I didn't do the nine years you were investing, I'm going to invest from age 31 all the way to age 65. So they're going to invest for 35 years at two grand a year. How much do you think they have? Even though they saved $70,000 versus that 18000 you put away, 
their account's only going to be worth four hundred and seventy thousand dollars. Do you see that? Do you you only saved eighteen thousand dollars, yet your account's worth a hundred and nine thousand dollars more than your buddy that didn't start saving as soon as they graduated from college. And that is how important it is that you start saving as soon as possible. If you wait too long, you really put yourself at a huge disadvantage. I wanted to give you some insight from the great Warren Buffett, the Oracle from Omaha. And, you know, this is one of those things about investments. And I read this in the last podcast, but I think it's so important I'm going to reread it. It says, and this is from his 2005, um, the Berkshire Hathaway, that's his investment company, their annual report. It says, over the last 35 years, American businesses have delivered terrific results. It should therefore have been easy for investors to earn juicy returns. All they had to do was piggyback corporate America in a diversified, low-expense way. An index fund that they never touched would have done the job. Instead, many investors have had experiences ranging from mediocre to disastrous. There have been three primary causes. First, high costs, usually because investors traded excessively or spent far too much on investment management. Second, Portfolio decisions based upon tips and fads rather than on thoughtful, quantified evaluation of businesses. And third, a start-and-stop approach to the market marked by untimely entries and exits. Investors should remember that excitement and expenses are their enemies. And if they insist on trying to time their participation in equities, they should try to be fearful when others are greedy and greedy only when others are fearful. Does this sound familiar? This is exactly what I've been telling you guys. Um, another thing from Warren Buffett, this is from his 2006 Berkshire Hathaway annual report. It says, this is his thoughts on the market direction. It says, if the market gets cheaper, we'll be buying as prices drop. I'm, meaning Mr. Buffett, always looking to buy stocks just as I buy groceries every week. And I prefer, prefer lower prices for both. We spend no time trying to forecast what the market will do. We don't know which way it's headed. We do know that sometimes we'll get great value for our money. So you see, you do not want to time the market. You want to hang in there and be an investor that's going to be buying for the long term. He also, this is just general advice for investors. He wrote, if you had the choice of owning bonds yielding 4.5% or owning stocks for the next 20 years, you should own stocks. But if you think you can earn double-digit annual returns in stocks, you are kidding yourselves. The stock market should generate average annual returns of 6 to 7%. So you can see Mr. Buffett is not so optimistic that we're going to have those good times where you got 20, 30, 40% rates of returns like we had in the 90s. But he does think that the long term, you know, there are some rates of returns out there for you to take down. There's only a few more things I want to go over. I'm going to close this out because I know I'm going along with the podcast, but this is some important important stuff that you guys need to hear to just know the core problems to what the average investor is doing wrong. In 2004, remember that group Dalbar that I've been quoting? They examined the fund flows for a 20-year period on the average investor to figure out what market timers have really done for themselves. And what they found out was that market timers and stock mutual funds lost 3.3% per year on average. And you say, well, wait a minute, Brian. What happened during the 20-year period? They lost 3.3 a year. What did the S&P 500 do if they had just bought and been that lazy investor that I'm talking about? Lazy investors can be the wealthiest. The S&P 500 during that exact same 20-year period increased at 12.9% per year. 
do you see the power here of what you're really crippling yourself if you let your emotions drive what you're doing on your investments? 2001, Wilshire Associates Analysis. They did, this is another research group, from September 1986 to September 2001, they did a study to figure out what happened if you missed some of the best days. Now, I know that this can be kind of a controversial number to give you guys because I know there's going to be somebody out there that says, well, wait a minute. You're about to give the what happened if you missed the best days in the market. What happened if you missed the worst days in the market? And I'm not even going to get into that whole um, debate over using these stats. I just want you guys to be informed about these numbers because this is very enlightening if you just hear the numbers about what happens if you miss the best days. Because remember, my advice is you're a buy and hold investor. You're going to buy these investments and sit pat. This is just telling you why you don't need to try to time it either way. But from 1986 to September 2001, if you remained invested for the entire 15-year period, you averaged a rate of return of 13.7% through the S&P 500. If you missed the best 10 days, that 13.7% dropped down to 9% a year. If you missed the best 40 days, that 13.7% period rate of return dropped down to 3.2%. And then if you missed the best 90 days, you actually lost 4% a year. Do you see how important some of those market swing days are and how you just need to be a buy and hold type saver? These things are very, very important. And another thing, since emotions do play such a large part of our investments, is you always see every decade there's something that scares the heebie-jeebies out of you on why you shouldn't be doing anything. In the 70s, let's face it, there was the Vietnam War. We had the OPEC oil embargo. Nixon, we went through the whole issue with Nixon. There was gas rationing. You know, you see those, those historic, the historic footage of people waiting in huge lines because of the gas rationing. And then let's not forget, Elvis did pass away in the 70s. These are all reasons on why you should not have been investing if you were a fearful individual. And then we go into 80s. The 80s, we identified AIDS. We had the um, savings and loans bailout, the Exxon Valdez. Iran-Contra. And then the first Elvis sighting. Then the 1990s, we had the Gulf War, the World Trade Center, not the one from 2000, not the 2001 terrorist attack, obviously, but the one from the 90s. The, um, the Oklahoma City bombing, the Asian crisis, and then we had the OJ trial. And then in the 2000s, just so far, we've had the crazy presidential election back in 2000. We had 9-11, which was when the World Trade Centers were bombed, as well as the, the Pentagon. We had Katrina just last year. We've got everything that's going on over in Iraq and Afghanistan. We've had the bird flu over in Asia. And then we had the market crash of 2000 all the way to really um, 2002. So these are all reasons why you shouldn't be investing. So you can scare yourself to death at any point in time, and I don't think this is going to change. I think if you look in the future, we're always going to have something going on in the world that's going to scare you to death. You have to realize that, remember, short-term, the financial markets are driven by fear and greed and emotions. Long-term, they're driven by the economy and the financial stability of the companies that are out there that you're investing in. So I hope that gives you some insight on how you need to really make sure that you're looking at your investments. And remember, sometimes being lazy, meaning being a buy-and-hold type of investor, is actually the better course of action than try to jump in and jump out and be a market timer. Now, I did want to save myself a little bit of time to give you a rant on Social Security. 
I did this a few months ago. I got a few emails. Some of you guys, you shock me. You're young people that sent me these reply emails, and you think that I'm nuts, that Social Security is perfect the way it is. You guys are insane. I think you've been watching, um, because I subscribe to it, because I think it's just a hoot to read. If you subscribe to MTV's Rock the Vote campaign, they will send you something that will tell you how great Social Security currently is. I don't care how you vote. I don't want this. This is not a political discussion. I'm just telling you Social Security stinks. And the reason, I have proof. You don't take my word on this. This is the truth on why Social Security stinks for young people. Before I read you my proof, let me give you some more some more facts out there. Why do you think the government is letting us have Roth IRAs and now they're doing Roth 401ks? And why are they doing all these things that allow us to save more and more money for retirement? Government doesn't do anything because they're just great people. The reason they're doing it is because they're scared to death They know that Social Security is going to have trouble, so they're trying to encourage young investors to save for their future. So that's why they're letting us put this money in these Roth IRAs and these Roth 401Ks where you put the money in. It grows completely tax-free forever. That's tremendous. And the reason they're doing it is because they know Social Security stinks and they got to do something about it. So I've got my Social Security statement. This is what really drives me crazy when I get in the mail. You know, every year they send you out your Social Security statement. Well, I got mine recently. And you read through this, all this, this really is wording, you know, and all your benefits and so forth. And you get to a section and it says right here with an asterisk, it says, Your estimated benefits are based upon current law. Congress has made changes to the law in the past and can do so at any time. The law governing benefit amounts may change because by 2040, the payroll taxes collected will be enough to pay only, here's, listen up, listen up, this is it everybody, the payroll taxes collected will be enough to pay only about 74% of your scheduled benefits. Even on these Social Security statements that is sent out by the government, explaining what I'm entitled to, tell me that it's going broke. This thing stinks. We need some reform, but they're never going to do it because you know why? They don't respect young voters because we don't do anything. We're, we're, we do whatever. We, we're too busy running up credit card debt, buying new cars, you know, buying the, the latest uh, genes that we can, you know, we're not paying attention to what's going on in the political world and they take us for granted. That's why I've given you, if you go to our website, money-guy.com, we've got a link to vote-smart.org and you can find out the name and address of your state rep, your U.S. senator, your U.S. rep. Write these people, let them know they're ripping us blind here. They're really hurting, um, Anybody who's young uh, uh, not giving us the right opportunity. And another thing, you know, the reason, just to recap why I'm so mad about this, remember I lost my father when he was 55 years of age. He was a young guy. I lost him back in um, 2000. And I remember I still have that last Social Security statement that showed he paid in well over six figures into the Social Security system. And I don't know if you know it because maybe you haven't lost anybody, but if you, when your family members pass away, what is the death benefit from Social Security the way it currently is? It is $255. So for that six-figure contribution to the federal government, my family got $255. That is so powerful when you consider what a six-figure investment could be worth to the family if we were able to put that in our own investment accounts. And I know some of you go email me and say, yes, but your mother 
um, or his spouse could have gotten the benefit. But the difference is, is that both my parents, my mom was a school teacher, my dad was a salesman that never made a lot of money, and they made about the same amount of money, so it nullifies any benefits he has. She's going to get her benefits and not his. So don't even try that argument. doesn't work here. So I just want to give you my rant. Social Security is a joke. Please go out there and do something. Okay, calming down. I gotta remind you guys, thanks so much for subscribing. Please, you know, continue to tell your friends and family about our podcast. Um, send me comments if you want to at Brian at money-guy.com. You can also call our 1-800 number. That's 1-800-762-8502. And, um, just thanks so much for tuning in. If you, just please remember also, that we need your help on just making sure we keep this show growing. This is not, I don't do any marketing. I'm not out there trying to inflate the numbers. I just need grassroots support from my subscribers to continue to tell their friends and family. Until next time, may God bless you with good wealth, health, family, and friends. Thanks so much. 